0: Thank you for catching us up, Lexi, because we need to keep track of why we're talking about these things, and we're talking about these things because Paul has said, because of God's mercy, we are to offer our whole lives as living sacrifices to to, to the Lord, and he's working out, what does that look like? So he's giving us quite a list, a deceptively short list, of how to live out living our whole lives for God as living sacrifice. At first glance, the, the, the verses today that we're looking at, verses 11 through 12, seem like they're somewhat random, but they actually connect together. There's, you can see how Paul was tracking. So we'll see that as we work through them. Uh, the first thing that he tells us in verse 11 is, do not be slothful in zeal. I wonder how many of you have used the word slothful this week. Not in regards to anyone in your family, but in other other things going on. Uh, the word for slothful means to shrink back from doing something worthwhile. It means basically to be lazy. So don't be lazy in zeal. The word for zeal means diligence or devotion. And so what is Paul asking us to be zealous in doing? Is he saying that we just need to be zealous in everything we do? Well, maybe. I don't think he means that we're always to be running on high adrenaline every waking moment. Rather, he means that in devoting our whole life to God so that we do His good, pleasing, and perfect will, we do it with zeal. We, we do it with intensity. We should not be slothful and lazy, but energetic and fruitful. It also describes the way that we are to do what Paul just said in verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10 he said, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, and love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. So do that with, with zeal. Don't be slothful in doing those things. If you're zealous for something, your heart is in it. And turn that around. If your heart is in something, you're zealous for it. We're zealous for what we love. We use that word love to describe, hey, I really love to do this. and So we're zealous for what we love. Uh, you will find the energy and time to do what you love. Have you noticed that? If you're a guy who loves following sports, no one has to tell you to be sure to keep track of what teams are playing when. Probably you're checking your phones now to see who's doing what. Your wife doesn't have to say to you, I wish you would stop doing chores, honey, and sit down and watch this game. If you're zealous for card games, you're, you're going to find a way to play card games. If you're zealous for chocolate, if you love chocolate, no one has to tell you to eat it. No one has to twist your arm. In fact, you're not safe to be around if you don't have it. Growing in Christ, accomplishing anything for God requires diligence and zeal. You won't grow, you won't overcome sins without zeal. That we should not be slothful and zeal is connected to what Paul says next. He says, be fervent in spirit. This could literally be translated, be boiling in the spirit, be fired up, just be on fire. It means to be very eager to do something, to be enthusiastic. This exhortation is closely connected with the previous one. As we said, don't be a slacker in zeal. Instead, be fervent, be boiling in spirit. Some people seem to think that they can just passively wait for a feeling to come over them, to be zealous and fervent in spirit in living out their faith. It's as if, if as if they expect God to just down, download godly desires into them without them having to do anything. While God does work through His Spirit in our hearts, for sure, and He stirs up our hearts through His Holy Spirit, um, Paul is exhorting exhorting us to be zealous and fervent. So do we try to just work up zealous and fervent feelings, or what do we do? How do we do that? How do we be zealous and fervent? Well, what we do is we pursue the means of grace God has given us for fueling our hearts with God's faith with His Word, prayer, worship through song, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, intentionally seeking to put into practice what God says in His Word, putting off the old stuff, putting on the new stuff that we have in Christ, and rather than waiting until we feel like it, we serve the Lord, which is what he says next. Serving the Lord doesn't just refer to your involvement in church activities. Serving the Lord includes what you do for church gatherings for sure and what you do in ministry, but it also refers to serving the Lord in your families, your school, your work, your um, your neighborhood. It means that in every area of your life, you are submitting to Christ's lordship and honoring him in everything. You are always seeking to please the Lord first before you seek to please yourself or seek to please others. You're You're, you're driven by pleasing the Lord in all you do whether as a son or a daughter, as a student, teammate, roommate, husband, wife, parent, grandparent, employee, or business owner. In all that you do, you're driven to to honor the Lord, to uphold His, his glory in all things. So with zeal, diligence, and a fervent spirit, we are to serve the Lord. Again, this doesn't mean that you wait until you feel like it, then you serve the Lord. You step out in faith, obedience to him, praying for his strength and wisdom to serve him. Which leads us to verse 12. Because when we're serving the Lord, we need joy. So what does Paul mean by rejoice in hope? He says rejoice in hope. He certainly has in mind what he said back in chapter 5, verse 2. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, because God has made us right with himself through faith in Jesus Christ, we we rejoice in the certainty of the hope that we will be raised from the dead and glorified. We will no longer have any sin, sickness, suffering, or sorrow. We will have immortal bodies that will reflect the glory of Christ. So we rejoice in the present with a view to the greatness and certainty of our future hope. But let me ask us this. Is, Is rejoicing in the certain hope of our future glory a reality for us today? I mean, is it really there in my motivation? Do I really think about it? If you've been around church for a while, you have to say, well, yes, it does. But even though we may be sincere when we say that, I think the reality is most of us struggle in the midst of our everyday trials. When you're sitting in traffic back up, when you're frustrated at problems that you're experiencing, do you automatically go to think, but but I have glory coming, one day I'm going to be free of all this. I'm going to be with the Lord. Do you think that way? It's a struggle, I think, to to just go right there and for that to be giving you rejoicing in the midst of of the trials you're having. It's not that we don't have any reason to rejoice except for hope and future glory. We can rejoice in God himself because we know he's for us now in Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus is is with us in our trials and, and our struggles. He's, um, he's working in them for his glory and our good. We can rejoice in ways that he blesses us with family most of the time, friends, food, finances, and other good things. But all of our present joys will end when we die. And apart from our receiving glorified immortal bodies like that of Jesus, we won't be free of suffering or able to enjoy God forever. So we need to pursue setting our minds and hearts on our future glory hope of glory, to rejoice in this present life. We need to train our minds to go there. Jesus is the great example of one who, in the midst of his sufferings, rejoiced in the hope of his future glory. It said that he, as the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him, so the joy that was out there, endured the cross and despised the shame. He wasn't thinking when he was on the cross, man, I'm really enjoying this. This is great. I can't imagine any place I'd rather be. He despised the shame. He endured the cross. But for the joy set before him in his future glory, he had that joy track that he was on. We don't want to merely rejoice in things that make sense to rejoice in from a human perspective. I'll say that again. We don't want to merely rejoice in things that make make sense from a human perspective to, to, to rejoice in. We want our greatest rejoicing to be in what's going to be true for us when God's saving plan for us reaches his fulfillment for eternity. As Paul says in Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will be, will appear with him in glory. I want my rejoicing and hope to be God gifted, God centered, and God empowered not just explain because, hey, he's comfortable, he's got good health, he's got money, he's got good things, he's got a good family. Those are all good gifts we should be grateful for. But it's when we can't explain how we can rejoice that, that we're rejoicing with a, a joy that comes from God. As Paul says in Romans 15, a few chapters ahead, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope, so God is so much about hope, he's called the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So I want Holy Spirit-powered hope and joy. Next we see why we need to rejoice in the certainty of our future hope of glory, because Paul says we need to be patient in tribulation. We need to be patient in tribulation. And we could translate that, endure in affliction or bear up under suffering. We all have, have gone through, are going through, or will go through very shortly, suffering. We're all going, going to endure affliction at some point, if you're not going through it now. Being a Christian does not exempt us from trouble and suffering. Paul exhorts us to be patient in them, to, be, to endure them, to bear up under them. How do we do that? Good question. It's no coincidence that Paul wrote rejoice in hope before he says be patient in tribulation. For we can best bear up under sufferings when we can rejoice in certain hope that our afflictions are not ruining us, rather that God is actually working in them to refine us. Again, he talked about this in Romans 5. He said we rejoice in our sufferings. We actually do rejoice in our sufferings, but in the midst of our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, since we know God is working endurance in us, which produces character, which produces hope, that is, hope of being glorified in immortal bodies like Christ's. For the most part, we don't really see how God is perfecting us through suffering and struggles. It's hard to see that. Sometimes we get a glimpse of it, but paul says we rejoice because we know by faith that suffering produces endurance character and hope of glory i don't particularly feel how god is working through my having parkinsons for good i mean you say encouraging things you're supportive and so that's good and and i'm i'm grateful for that but i don't like i don't hey i'm really loving this this is just my thing and i'm i'm glad to be the the parkinsons parkinsons guy here it's great I don't see it. But by faith, I know that God is doing good because His Word tells me He is doing good. And so I, I, I lay hold of it by faith. Which is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He said that like that's supposed to help us. It is supposed to help us. Light momentary affliction, like decades of disease, is light momentary, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we are patient in tribulation by faith in what God has revealed about his purpose in our afflictions. They don't feel light momentary, but in Christ they are producing in us eternal good. Making progress and growth in Christ and for the gospel always involves, inevitably involves, being patient in tribulation. So if you don't want to grow, then don't be patient in tribulation. Adoniram Judson was a missionary to Burma. Today it's called Myanmar. Back in the early to to mid-1800s suffered terrible diseases, terrible diseases. He was held captive by the natives for months. He was hung by his feet and his hands with his shoulders on the ground for months. He went years of being isolated in depression. He just took off and took his Bible with him and was depressed for for years. He lost two of his wives. He was married to them separately, so they weren't, he wasn't a polygamist. But he had a wife, she died, and the next wife, and she died. He lost two of his wives to death. And most of his children, several children, died early on. His third wife died of tuberculosis soon after he, after he died. During this time, he was learning the language and producing, uh, and translating the Bible into the, the language of, of the Burmese. The fruit of his suffering was the completion of the Burmese Bible and a dictionary. Hundreds of converts were leading the church when he died. Today, there are about 3,700 congregations in Myanmar that trace their origin to Judson's labors of love. How did he endure such suffering? Well, for one one reason, he, he was constant in prayer. And that's the final thing that Paul mentions here, being constant in prayer. The word for being constant means to continue to do something with intense effort. So you could translate this, be devoted to prayer, be persistent in prayer. The same words for be constant, be devoted, be be persistent in, is used with prayer in other passages, and here are a few of them. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert in it with all perseverance. There's that word. Making supplication for all the saints. Colossians 4:2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Acts 1:14. All these were, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And Acts 2:42. The early disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship breaking of bread, and the prayers. So back to verse 12, but I will mention a couple other verses. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Paul says, Pray without ceasing. Jesus taught that his disciples ought always to pray and not lose heart. Ought always to pray and not lose heart. Do you get the idea that God wants us to pray a lot? Why? Why? Is it just because that is what you do to be a good religious person? What are we doing when we pray? What, what, what is happening when we pray? What are we saying? What are we thinking? In prayer, we are expressing faith in God as a God who desires a relationship with us. So prayer, along with God's word, is vital for keeping our relationship with God strong and experiential. Just as in a marriage or family relationship, you need to communicate more than once a year, at least twice. Yeah, there you go. In prayer, we are coming to God as our heavenly Father through Jesus, his Son, who is merciful and good and just and wise and all-knowing and all-powerful. In prayer, we seek God as a God who sovereignly guides and directs all that happens in the world. So we, we... No, he's that, and so we pray. We trust God as the God who will one day bring about full and perfect justice and stop all evil and sin and sickness and death and terrorist attacks and wars and tragedies. Otherwise, how can we rejoice in hope if we don't believe God is able and going to do those things? And we pray to God as the God who is designed to involve our prayers. He's designed to involve our prayers in accomplishing his will we don't pray as if our prayers control god or force him onto our agenda yet we know from scripture and hopefully from some experience that god really does hear and answer prayer there are many exhortations to pray in i mean throughout the whole bible many, many exhortations to pray, many examples of people who prayed. So James 5, 16 to 18, the prayer of, of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So if you have Christ in your life and you're praying, there's major power power going on. He said, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. So evidently, One of you hasn't been praying that for here. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and and the earth bore fruit. One writer calls prayer rebellion against the status quo. Rebellion against the status quo. We pray seeking that God would not leave mediocrity, sin, brokenness, bondage, evil, evil. Corruption, deceit, and injustice to rule the the world forever. Rather, we pray God's kingdom come and his will will be done. At least some in this present age with a view to the fulfillment when Christ returns. Jesus prayed a lot and he taught a lot about prayer so that his disciples said, hey, can you teach us to pray? It's like the only time you ever hear them say, can you teach us to do something? So they were really intrigued by it the way Jesus prayed. He taught them to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be seen as holy in the earth. And he said prayer really matters. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Literally, the verbs indicate a continuous action. Keep, Keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Some things we were going to be praying for for months and years. It's not a sign to to quit praying just because it's taking months and years. So how do we obey Paul's exhortation to be constant in prayer, to be persistent in prayer? Well, the short answer is we pray about everything. We pray about everything we're concerned about because God is involved in everything. We want his will to be done and our hearts aligned with his. I think it's helpful to consider the various types of prayer. There, we can, you can break it up in other ways, but there are three types of prayer for our purposes. There's upward, inward, and outward. Upward prayers are praise and thanksgiving that focuses on God Himself. Jesus said to pray that God's name be treated as holy, that He be exalted. A good part of our praying should be praising God, thanking God, um, delighting in God praying psalms and other passages that exalt God and what he has done. Then there's inward prayer. Inward prayer is the self-examination and confession that brings a deeper sense of sin, which produces a higher experience of grace and assurance of love. So as you, as you acknowledge your sin and, and your struggles before God, you have that much more to draw upon from his grace. God knows your sins. He wants you to develop a heart sensitive and resistant to sin that holds fast to Christ's grace and then there's outward prayer supplication and intercession that focuses on our needs and the needs of others in the world so so how do we work being constant in prayer into the busyness of our daily lives how do we really do this well you're gonna to have to dedicate some time daily to praying amazingly and if you don't pray at all and you don't read the Bible at all, then can you find a five-minute window to read like a psalm and turn that into prayer? Um, so that read your Bible and say, God, help me to understand this. Help me to apply it. Help me, give me the strength and the grace and the desire to do it. And then keep checking in with God throughout the day. Pray as you go throughout the day. Mostly these are sentence prayers for wisdom, help. I find help comes in handy a lot. Strength, overcoming sin and loving what is good, praying for family, friends, your church, health, finances, work situations, global issues, missions. Pray as you drive, preferably with your eyes open. What if... What if you prayed as frequently as you check your cell phone? Just a thought. Maybe you put on your cell phone homepage a prompt for prayer. That way you have to see it every time you, you check your phone. Um, what if we prayed even half maybe a quarter as much as we spend watching television or, or being online? What if we prayed as much as we worry? How often are our prayers just worrying in God's direction? Well, it's actually a good prompt for prayer because Paul says in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. So don't be anxious about anything, but turn your anxieties into prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. What if we obeyed that text, actually? What if we actually did this? What if every time we had anxious thoughts, we turned them into prayer with thanksgiving? You might actually have peace. Christ would guard your heart and your mind. On the one hand, prayer involves saying to God, Your will be done. At the same time, prayer is pleading with God to act, to change circumstances, to stop evil, to advance good, to provide for needs. It is strenuously pleading for God to intervene. It is struggling before Him for what we believe would be good for Him to make happen. Two more things to say. We can absolutely trust that God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. We can absolutely trust that God will give us what we ask for or would give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. And then Paul says in another place, in Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, he's working his power in us as as we pray. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So I'm going to pray that God would help us do what these texts say. And I'm also going to pray for our preparation for taking the Lord's table together. As we uh, enter into a time of worship, you're free at any time to get up by yourself or with others and take the bread and take the cup. It's an expression of faith in Christ's body and blood, in his death and his his incarnation to to save us. So if you are a believer in Christ and you've received him, you're free to take that meal. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, then um change that. Trust in him, in his saving death and resurrection to save you, and that meal will mean something for you. So it's it's a great time for our worship. Uh, at any time during the, during the songs, you're free to get up and, and take the meal either there at the spot or back to your seats. So I'll pray for God to prepare our hearts. Father, would you, by your Spirit, cause us to not be slothful in zeal, to be fervent in spirit, to serve you. Cause us to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And Father, the only reason we have freedom to grow in these things, because it's it's all about growing, It's none of us are ever going to arrive at these things perfectly in, the, in this life. We long, Father, for that hope of glory when one day we'll be f- totally free of all the sin, and sickness, and sorrow, and things of this world that you know, that keep us stuck in unbelief and doubt and fear. And so, Father, because of what Christ has done for us, we worship Him through song. We we can pray t- to You through Him, and Father, He's appointed for us to have these elements the bread and the cup, for reminding ourselves about his death and resurrection for us and the life we have in him and the communion we have with him. Father, may we pray more and more in the reality of we just have communion with the living God. We have life in you. We're going to be talking to you forever. So help us, Father, to be constant in prayer. May we lay hold of all Christ is for us by faith. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.